I think what it is is on a whole host of issues I come down on like the right side and I come and I come down with the tone yeah of like a lot of these other people like in the states and then I just get branded uh that way this is Van Color My name is Mo Amir, and today on This Is Van Color, I'm celebrating my birthday, and I'm joined by a guest who's also celebrating his birthday because we have the same birthday. 3-3, baby, populist birthday bros. He is an independent journalist whose videos have garnered over 50 million views. He has 60-something thousand followers on Facebook. He was a spokesperson for BC Proud, and he's worked for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, where he became the executive director of the Generation Screwed Initiative. He is flirting with the idea of running for the BC Liberal leadership. Maybe we'll get an answer today. The beer's out, so maybe we will find out. He is an advocate for taxpayers and common sense. He is Aaron Gunn. Aaron, happy birthday, and how are you, man? I am good, and and happy birthday to you as well, Mo. Thank you for having me. Of course. I, I applaud your your courage and bravery <laughs> for having me on your show today. So I, I really do appreciate that. I actually brought you a little gift. You did? I did, yes. You're bribing me already. I uh, Oh, this is... I had to go like all, all around town to, find, uh, to try to find an export from the socialist ravage economy of Venezuela, <laughs> but I was able to find it. This diplomatico, I think that I assume that means diplomacy in English, and I think yeah. that's uh, what we need more of in our. Is that a rum? You're, you're, you're socially system. distanced, so I yeah. can't see it that well. Is it, it a rum? It is a rum from Venezuela. Oh, right. It is. It's the only export I could find. And I'm going to enjoy that. I and I hope you shall. I hope you shall. And it's uh, it's diplomacy. So I appreciate you uh, having me on and discussing the issues. What a great gift! Thank you so much for that. Now. We have diametrically opposed views on a lot of issues, including our views on cancel culture. So let me ask you this right off the bat. How canceled am I right now, Aaron Gunn? Well, you know what? I thought about uh, this, Mo, as I was on my way here. And, uh, you know, I actually think this might be uh, your highest ratings show yet. (laughs) So it could be the exact opposite. But uh, no, in in all honesty, again, appreciate being on and... uh, being given the opportunity to speak uh, to your audience. Well, I actually have a lot of faith in the moms, in the political nerds, in the media types, and the Van Color ashram that listens to this podcast. But you know what? It's actually the BC Liberal faithful that have canceled me, and they actually kicked me out of the majority of BC Facebook group, which is administered by BC Liberal organizers, for the grave sin of posting about you. (laughs) No message, no warning, nothing cancelled. And you know what? It's a private group, so it's their call, and frankly, it's their loss. I feel like, however, the BC Liberals have been trying to cancel you. There have been some notable past and present BC Liberal organizers, folks associated with the party, that have publicly expressed their opposition to the mere idea that you might run for their party's leadership. And we call out people by name on this show, by the way. So let's get into it. Spencer Spruill, Brad Zubik, Taylor Varal, Terry Lake, and perhaps most aggressively, Mark Marison. Mark Marison 
categorized you as alt-right in at least three separate tweets on Twitter. Press Progress, in their hit piece, didn't even call you alt-right. Now, I don't like your positions. I I disagree with many of your positions. But I hold the label of alt-right, which is like a white nationalist movement. I hold that label with a lot of weight. From what I've gathered, you're more of an Aaron O'Toole conservative rather than like a Richard Spencer white nationalist. But I have to address the allegation because it's out in the ether. Are you alt-right? Well, you know, obviously I hate uh, kind of even uh, of having to answer that question. But, <laughs> that's what I'm asking you. But I will. To clarify for anybody that's that's still out there that, that doesn't know, uh, no, I am not alt-right. Um, and, and I thank you for giving me that opportunity to clear that up. I'm for common sense, public policy that makes sense for taxpayers. And just a little bit of a word. Um, I mean, you mentioned there are, I, I kind of, I would push back a little bit on the, the notion that there is this, uh, grassroots movement against my candidacy. I mean, you know, we have a province of 5 million people Mm -hmm. and I think you found six on Twitter. Uh, Mark Marison, I don't know who this guy is. Uh, I've, I've never met him before. Everyone I've asked about him have only had bad things to say. I mean, if this guy was a movie on Rotten Tomatoes, he'd have 0%. Like I've had (laughs) no positive feedback about this individual at all. I don't think he matters. And that's not who I'm concerned about. The only people that I'm concerned about are, you know, the grassroots and the people of this province in this country. So, um, you know, the, the haters are going to hate and that's fine. And um, they're obviously concerned about my my, my candidacy and what Are it represents. Are you calling Mark Marison a liar? I'm not. Well, if he's calling me alt right, then I guess he is a liar. I haven't actually seen the I, the exact tweeter. I can't recall it. But if he said Aaron Gunn is alt right, then yes, he is. He is lying. I he called you an alt right figure a couple times and said that you're alt right Trojan horse or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I don't I don't know the guy. I mean, he's a uh, you know he's a he's a he's a troll or, or whatever. I don't, I don't think he matters really. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not too concerned and I'm not too concerned about, uh, the Twitter sphere in, in general either. Why are they calling you alt-right? Why are the others that I mentioned so enthusiastic to maybe put you on the fringe? Well, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of these uh, kind of country club political strategists who jump from campaign to campaign uh, looking for a paycheck. Um, I, I'm not part of, so, you know, I'm not part of the establishment. I think they view me as a, a threat, which is unfortunate. I get it uh, because I represent change, but I also think that what the party needs right now is change and what the membership wants right now is change. And that for sure doesn't have to be me, but um, I think that's what's going on and that's okay. That's happened in lots of other parties before and lots of other organizations. Um, so, you know, it, it is, it is what it's, it uh, so you is going to be. It's a resistance to change from people who are entrenched in the status quo. I think there's two things. I think that's part of it. And then there is part of it. That's just ignorance. There are people that, that don't really know who I am or, or mm-hmm. haven't gone through my video. I'm sure there's been lots of people over the past couple of weeks who are probably checking me out for the first time because they're not on Facebook or, or, or whatever, which is where the majority of my following is. So mm-hmm. I think that's going on too. And, and let's be honest, there's, there's uh there's people that are in alignment with other campaigns and, um, you know, there's rumors swirling around. You've heard them. I've heard them. I don't know what's true, but, uh, you know, people, uh, are in it for themselves and have, uh, alternate, uh, or ulterior motives as well. Fair enough. And I do want to ask you this one more time because the alt-right label is 
a label on its own, mm-hmm. but let's just clear it up. Do you believe in white nationalism, white supremacy, white statism, or any movement based in white identity politics? I don't believe and I reject any movement grounded in any racial identity politics whatsoever. And I find I find everything that you just mentioned, white supremacy, white nationalism, uh, first of all, stupid and based on, on ignorance. I find it revolting. I find it disgusting. And to be honest, Mo, I find it goes against the very ethos of what it means to be Canadian. And I appreciate that. And I apologize for having to ask it. But as I it's said, okay. it's out there. Yeah, right? it's, it's out there. That's true. And I, I so mean, it's good to clear it up. Yeah. What's funny to me is that for all this BC liberal talk about renewal and dialogue, there are these elements of the party that seem keen to prevent you from running, from being included in that dialogue. When your ideology, as far as I can tell, lines up with a lot of mainstream conservatism in this country, which is supposed to be included in the big tent. And we've sort of discussed maybe some of the reasons why that exists. Some of it is politics. But again, the party itself has been advertising itself as like, you know, we're, we're all about renewal and we want to have dialogues about where to go forward and, and who should be included and all this other stuff. From my understanding, you were a member of the BC Conservatives. Correct me if I'm wrong. Your work as a commentator and video journalist largely centers around federal issues. So how are you even in this conversation right now to be running for the BC liberal leadership? Uh, so I don't, so as far as the BC conservative party, I don't think I ever was a member. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> you don't know if you ever paid your $10 so, dues or whatever. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, I don't know how much detail we want to get in. So, so I worked at the Canadian taxpayers federation for four years mm-hmm. and you can't hold a membership in any political party. Okay. So pre taxpayer days, uh, I was a member of the federal conservatives and the BC liberal party. Okay. I was up at, uh, I saw George, uh, Gordon Campbell getting drunk at the BC Liberal Convention back in 2009 <laughs> or whenever it was up in up in Whistler. Uh, so I, I remember those days. I was obviously pretty young. Um, and uh, after 2017, uh, you know, I had some contacts with uh, the provincial conservatives when the PR referendum was going on. Mm-hmm. Because and some people, like some people in the BC Liberal Party, were kind of trying to throw shade at me. But like, let's be honest: if the PR referendum passed, uh, you know, the the provincial conservatives uh, would have wa- uh, run a full slate in the last election. And uh, had a bunch of elected MLAs right now because that's what mm-hmm. would have happened instantaneously in uh, you know a proportional representation sure. proportional representation system. Um, during this last election, uh, I was asked by the BC Liberals to consider running for them in 2017. Oh, sorry, uh, in, in 2020. In 2020, yeah. Wow. I was uh, invited. I was I was invited to help uh, Dan Davies campaign in fort st john where i i made videos with him i didn't get paid it was all my own time um who was being challenged by a strong provincial conservative we got 30 percent of the vote in that riding so i've really stuck my neck out uh for this party in this last election more than a lot of people so i don't really know why that's uh coming at me again i think it's just the establishment that doesn't want a change and and um you know uh actual renewal and you asked so, me about the federal issues, I guess, as well. Yeah, let's let's get into that. So 
your work largely centers around federal issues. So I think if anyone saw the political jump, they would have seen you going into federal politics, not provincial politics. You've obviously mentioned some work with Dan Davies. Do you sort of see that disconnect where people look at you and go, this guy talks about federal issues all the time? Why is he getting into provincial politics potentially? Yeah, so I, I do get this a little bit, and I saw it in the Twitter sphere among some of the media types. Um, I talk about, so right now I'm a political commentator. I build brand, I create videos, I drive engagement, and take part in the public policy debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it so happens, the issues that people are most interested in right now are federal issues. I have talked about for the last three years, as long as I've been doing this, I've talked about provincial issues, I've talked about federal issues, and I've talked about municipal issues uh, in the train wreck of a city that that I live in. Now, which uh, is Victoria, just, to be clear. <laughs> just Victoria, in case you, yeah, <laughs> never know we're in this province. But um, so, I mean, like ICBC, the, some of the biggest videos I've ever done were on ICBC. I've had ICBC videos that got over a million views in a province of five million. Wow! So it's. And I've talked about gas prices when they were up at $1.70. I think that's a year and a half ago now. So, yeah, I just talk about issues that are important to individuals and to taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And if there's if there's nothing to talk about provincially, um, then you won't you won't hear me forcing an issue in a particular direction. <laughs> and uh, you know, I've been I've been uh, asked to run federally as well. Um, and uh, so it's. It's just, uh, and, and again, like I haven't decided what I'm doing provincially. Mm-hmm. To me, it's always about furthering public policy, uh, trying to make this province, this country a better place for the people that live here. That's why I'm doing this. It's certainly, certainly not to pad my bank account or anything like that. Um, and uh, so, so that's, I mean, that's basically what it is. So let's get into something you just said. You said that in 2020, so last year, for the last provincial election, you were approached by the BC Liberals to run. Yeah, I was asked. I mean, I, I guess I should be. Uh, I'm obviously. I'm not going to mention any names, but I asked. I was asked, like, would you consider running? Um, okay. You know, you do you want to grab a coffee? Let's talk. We'd love to have candidates like you. Would you consider running? Okay. Um, was this coming from the top, or was this like an MLA? This was coming from someone that worked that had a high position within the party. Okay. So, I mean, take that for what you for for what it sure. is. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I had, you know, me and the BC liberals, uh, uh, as they're structured right now, maybe aren't uh, the most perfect fit on a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, issues. And I, so, and the other thing is being in Victoria, as you know, it, uh, is not exactly the most fertile ground, uh, to run, uh, as an MLA perhaps in the BC liberal party, because they don't, they don't have a seat on the entire Island. So, right. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering how serious those conversations actually became. Was it just coffee and then you weren't interested? Yeah, I wasn't that interested. Okay. So they didn't become that, that serious. Federal, they approached you. They, but they approached me. They, re, they reached out. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean that, uh, that's basically that story. Federally, the, the conversations were maybe a bit more lengthy. But um, yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. And obviously, as, as I'm sure you can attest to, uh, whenever you choose to run in a leadership as MLA for MP, it's also a massive life decision. Of mm-hmm. course, there's like the political calculation that's going on, but it's also a, a colossal life uh, life decision that you're making for yourself. Sure. Absolutely. I have to ask you this, and you might be upset by this question. <laughs> Is this a publicity stunt? Are you doing this, even just the exploration to raise your profile online, to raise your profile, maybe break into some of the mainstream 
to get on to This Is Van Color, which has hosted five past and present BC political party leaders, including two premiers? Uh, definitely not. Uh, the, um, look, I've, I've carved out a really good niche for myself. Uh, there's a lot of plans that I had that, that I will continue to pursue if, if I don't end up running in the media space. And, uh, I'm taking this, uh, very seriously. The people that I'm surrounding myself with are taking this very seriously. Uh, we're looking through the rules and regulations very seriously. So we're doing our so due diligence. So you are building a team. I would say I'm doing my due diligence right now is, is I think the safest way to describe it. How many people do you have on retainer right now? I, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to, I mean, to be honest, most of the people are just doing it, like doing it out, like they just want to help out. Like there's sure. just, it's just been a, it's and actually to your earlier question. I mean, I've been inundated with people. You can see them commenting on my Facebook post, uh, direct messaging me, emailing me, reaching out. Some people I've never, I don't know some people who I've been, haven't heard from in a long time. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the main reason I'm doing this. It certainly is, is not, uh, uh, not for any other reason, uh, beyond that. So let's say you're doing your exploration, you decide that you're going to run for leadership and you're red lit, which for those who don't know, that means that the party is effectively stopping you from running in their leadership contest. Let's say that happens. Would you make the reason public? Because they, I assume they would give you a reason of why they won't let you run. How, like, what happens if you're red lit? So, uh, first of all, I definitely, so I, I haven't committed that I'm going to be running. If I do run, uh, this is just the disclaimer that I have to put out there. If <laughs> I, I do I run, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. If I do run, I highly doubt I would be red lit because that would be i mean that would be political malfeasance for the i mean as you point out if you're saying that i can't be part of this party that i can't be a leadership candidate for this party you're saying hundreds of thousands of british columbians who support me and the policies that i support can't be part of this party and you're basically signing your own death warrant as a party as far as i'm concerned so i don't think that they would they would make that decision i don't think that that's what they were trying to do with these rules that came out I know some people think that, but, um, so, uh, and you're asking if I do get red lit, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't even know how that process works. If it's, if it's, if that would be hypothetically public or not, Right. but, uh, certainly if you're asking me, uh, would I go quietly into the <laughs> good night or however that phrase goes, the answer is, uh, no, that's not how I do things. So, um, yeah, if, if you're saying that I can't be part of the party, you're saying that, you know, basically, uh, People that believe in, in common sense and mainstream conservatism have no place in the party. And, and if that's the case, then they can deal with the consequences. I'm asking that question because I've asked a few people who are in the party, associated with the party, and I go, what do you think about Aaron Gunn? And more than once, probably more than twice, I've got the response of, ha ha ha, he's never going to get greenlit. Yeah, I think... Uh I think there's a couple things there. One, like you said, a couple people, like who are these, these couple people? Um, and I think a lot of them are, you know, there's people that are, that are, uh, afraid of an outsider mm -hmm. and they're trying to shape the narrative that, uh, that I'm some radical individual and I'm so radical. I might get red lit, but you have, look, I've talked to a bunch of MLAs. Uh, they've all encouraged me to run. They've been very supportive and ex MLAs as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I don't see the party doing that at all. And again, there's no there there. I don't know what they're going to red light me for. For what being a being a uh, 
I don't even know what you what you want to call it. A mainstream conservative with the largest <laughs> social media following in British Columbia. Like that's how we're going to red light people from this party that is primarily com- comprised of conservatives. Okay, let's let's go at it from another angle then. In your exploration so far, in kicking the tires, asking around, do you feel supported by party organizers? I would say I feel very support. I, I tell you what I do feel very supported by. I feel very supported by the grassroots members of the party. I feel very supported by people who used to be grassroots members of the party but have left. Uh, people that have left to the BC Conservatives. People that have left to still vote BC Liberal, but doing so plugging their nose. People that have left to just not vote at all for the first time uh, ever, which I heard in a phone conversation yesterday, said last provincial election was the first time that they hadn't voted. Hmm. And obviously we saw the low low turnout. Sure, yeah. Um, so those are the kind of people that I feel are really rallying to my cause. And those are the people that I speak to. Like I, I don't speak to the, the, um, the elites or the media types, or the people that are paid professionally to, to organize. I uh, communicate with, you know, just everyday people, the people that are, you know, they're an electrician in Prince George or a pipe fitter in Kamloops or an accountant in Victoria or a bartender in Vancouver or whatever uh, the case may be. That's who I'm talking about. That's who I care about. I don't get these political organizers. I, I don't have a lot of time for them, quite frankly. Like, it's just, it's... Uh, but they're the gatekeepers, there. aren't they? The kingmakers? They want to be the gatekeepers. <laughs> they want to be the kingmakers. I mean, I just, if I can have a moment of frank honesty sure. with you... I didn't get into this. I don't understand people that get into politics just for organizing. It's like, oh, we want Team Red to win or we want Team Blue to win. I got into this for the policy, for the public policy, for the ideas. And I'm sure, and this, I'm, it's the same for people on the left and the right. I think that's the right reason to get into politics because you want to see change. And what I want to do if I get in this race is to have a conversation about policy. I watched the 2017 leadership race. It was like watching paint dry. I want to have an actual conversation about actual issues and have actual debate. I don't want it to get personal or talk about, you know, these cheap attacks or anything like that, but let's have a real discussion and a real debate. Like that's what uh, I think this democracy is supposed to be built on. And we will get into some policy and some values based ideas, but before we do, I want to go back to this idea of the political comms people, some of these political organizers. Ravi Kalon and I proposed that the BC Liberal leadership race is just a coronation ceremony for presumed frontrunner Kevin Falcon. We floated this idea when he was on the podcast that he is the appointed one from Party Brass. I've heard several folks tell me that he's spending a ridiculous amount of money. I've heard upwards of $50,000 a month just to keep some of these political comms people and strategists on retainer. He seems to have generated a lot of support with a lot of these, I mean, I call them high profile organizers, but it's like inside baseball stuff for political nerds like myself, right? So people who sort of have a passing familiarity with these names would know some of these names. Do you think that the BC Liberal Party organizers, we're not talking about the supporters, we're not talking about MLAs, but the organizers, do you think that they already have their hearts set on Kevin Falcon? I mean, some definitely do, uh, in the same way that some definitely had their minds and hearts set on Peter McKay and the Conservative Party leadership. Um, but it doesn't always work out that way. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. This is not going to be a coronation. This is going to be a competitive race 
whether or not I decide to join. There are lots of other interesting MLAs. Uh, Ellis Ross is great. He's a legend. Um, I don't know if Renee Merrifield's going to get in. She seems like a little bit of a rising star. There's others. Uh, Tom Shapitka, I don't know if he's going to get in. He seems like a, a good guy. Uh, so this is not going to be a coronation. It's going to be a competitive race, regardless of what you know, uh, Politico Joe wants um, s- sitting in his, his little office. So I don't think, and, and by the way, I have to say too, uh, the party says that it wants renewal and it needs renewal. It needs it re- needs rejuvenation, it needs rebranding, it needs new ideas. And the solution to that isn't for a bunch of political operatives to team up with a group of archaeologists to go dig up a candidate that nobody's seen for 10 years. <laughs> that is not the solution that the party needs. Okay, we, there's lots of other people to choose from. There's a business people that could jump in from the community. Um, you know, we don't need to start scouring the list of the witness protection program to find the next leader of the of the BC Liberal Party. So, yeah, I, I reject uh, I reject that. And I think, like I said, it's it's nothing to do with me. I think there's lots of other people uh, that are going to bring fresh ideas and fresh faces to this race. And and uh, you know, I look forward to either being part of that or or watching it. Wow. <laughs> you know I can't let go of Kevin Falcon after you said that. So one thing I've found quite interesting and again, a lot of this is around Twitter and a lot of this is kind of gossip over the phone and stuff because that's where the conversation is happening, right? Most people who are following politics are not really following the stuff that you and I might be following. I find it hypocritical that the BC Liberals so vehemently defended Kevin Falcon from BCNDP attacks. And I want to point out two of the three attacks I was associated with. Ravi Kalon came onto this podcast. He wanted to talk about Falcon. I went on to David Eby's podcast to talk about you and Kevin Falcon. By the way, boosted that podcast to the number one government podcast on the Apple podcast charts. But what I found was that the BC liberals, you know, they were crying like, oh, Kevin's a private citizen. He's not even a declared candidate. But when Press Progress put out an article about you, basically associating you with some rebel media personalities, nothing, not a peep. And as I mentioned before, more than that, whether it is Mark Marison or Taylor Varel or Brad Zubik, certain BC liberals have no qualms about going after you in public and presumably in private too, even though you're a private citizen, you haven't declared anything. How does that double standard make you feel? Well, let me say first off, uh, and also to connect with the last answer I just gave, I also don't, uh, I don't, I don't know Kevin. I assume he's a good guy. I assume he's a, a, a great family man. And, uh, I got nothing against him, uh, personally, uh, at all whatsoever. Um, the, uh, your second point about, yeah, I mean, look, I just think it's, you know, I, I risk being a little bit redundant here, but I think it's, you know, they're. You know, in fairness, like I, I'm not part of caucus, so. But neither is Kevin Falcon. Neither is Kevin Falcon, but he's got a lot of relationships there from 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 when he was there, uh, and I don't. And I think, you know, people are. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's obviously a little bit disappointing to see, but it's um, you know they're on they're on team. I don't even know what you call the the BC Liberals team red. Is that? team red and blue or whatever (laughs) i don't know i don't know what the the analogy is there and they and they kind of close ranks and uh obviously they don't uh, close ranks on me which i think um 
which which is fine. Like it, it's it's uh, look, it's. But not- you told me that you have some MLAs that support you or like you. How come they didn't come out and say anything about the press progress thing? Is it something where they fear? being canceled or they fear maybe backlash of having to defend you yeah i think it's just nobody likes being kind of the first first one out on a ledge i think that um there's a lot of people look there's not like it's not like the majority of i don't it's not like any mlas or or main organizers i think after that press progress piece jumped on top of me um so i think i think it's more you know i'd like to try to that's your win that no one else stomped you <laughs> well i don't know if that's a good sign yeah i'm just a neutral gonna, sign <laughs> yeah i'm gonna say people are cautious okay. i think people are cautious <laughs> i i really think and and for all for all of the tough talk like i think the leadership committee a lot of these people within the party yes there's mark marisons are out there but i think most of the people are trying to still trying to gauge me hmm. um and figure out what i'm all about and uh, how i would potentially impact this race. So that's what I actually think is going on. And that includes the media, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure, but at the end of the day, look, I'm, I'm used to it. I've got, I've got my own brand. I've got a thick skin. I can defend myself. So that's, uh, that's okay. I'm curious about how much your rumored candidacy plays into the BC liberal leadership nomination rules, because one of the rules says that a candidate cannot be a person whose approval to become a leadership contestant would likely bring the party into disrepute, which is like a really gray rule, and it's unclear what that means. As we've noted, some of them have already branded you alt-right. Some of them have said that you're craving public attention, including public criticism. You've told me that some people have asked you about your own dirt. So what are they implying? What is your dirty secret, Aaron? Let's just get it out in the open. I mean, Press Progress did all the digging. So that's, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's all laid out right there. Look, I, I find it a little bit um, ironic because I, as far as I can tell, I'm probably the most open book uh, candidate to run for the leadership of a major uh, political party in Canada. Literally, my stance on almost every single issue is laid out in videos that I've recorded over the past three years. Before that, I was speaking at conferences. I think all of those are online. And um, I, you know, I'm, I'm an open book. There's, there's, I'll tell you one thing, there's going to be no surprises to any of my friends or family or, or, or close political contacts or anything like that, because everybody knows where I stand on virtually every single issue. And, um, you know, so it's, but yeah, that clause, I mean, some people were calling it the Aaron Gunn clause. I mean, like... That might have been me, by the way. <laughs> I, yeah, I I mean, look, they're, they're pro- to me, I view that, I'm viewing that as like, you know, glass half full, which is they're giving themselves, uh, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of this, but they're giving themselves the leeway to basically axe whoever they want to axe. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they're going to, uh, quote unquote, red light me. And like I said, it goes back. I honestly think it's, and because it's such a wishy-washy definition yeah. and there's no, there's not like a court of law where you're going to get a fair defense or anything like that. I think it's going to come down to a political calculation, hmm. but at the end of the day, like the party needs people like me and people that support people like me, if they have any chance of forming government, I, lo- I mean, they lost four or five seats in the last election from vote splitting in the Fraser Valley. So when you say people like you, you mean mainstream conservatives? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, yes. And I actually want to take a second just to say, like, I don't like, 
like I'll, I'll take mainstream conservative, but I'm not a fan of any label because I, I, I like, I view myself as kind of an independent and, uh, obviously I align on more issues with, with maybe federal conservatives in that sphere. Right. But I, but I need an idea of what you mean by people like me when you say that. Yeah. I I'd say, you know, common sense, but if you're trying, if you're trying to frame it on like, I mean, we've, we've chatted about this too, how kind of that binary political spectrum is very simplistic, mm-hmm. but, um, it is, it is a, can be a useful reference point, but yeah, no, that that's, I mean, that's what I mean, I suppose. Did you read the leadership rules that came out on Friday? Skimmed them. <laughs> Did anything stick out to you? What'd you think? I mean, there's the, uh, I mean, there, there's something at the end, like the loyalty pledge, which right. I kind of chuckled at. But um, yeah, to me, it seemed like, look, if there was a, if they wanted to, try to block my candidacy, I think would be a lot more obvious. Mm. I think I read this as a lot more of like, hmm, we don't really know who this Aaron Gunn guy is. So let's put in these, let's put in these extra rules to make sure if he gets in, he plays ball. And like, you know, we can, we can kind of, hmm. we can kind of keep him within the box. That's what I view it. Like that, that's how I view it. It's um like all those loyalty rules. Like those aren't to block people. Those are to contain them once they're in the race. Yeah. So, are you fine with those? I mean, yeah, to an extent, or, or yes, I am. Like, I mean, it's, it's, um, look, if you, if, if you allow people to get in the race to talk about policy, mm-hmm. apply the rules fairly, that's, that's all I, a fair competition. Whoever wins, I'll support that all sounds good to me. Um, as long as everyone's treated fairly and as long as we can have a real debate on policy, that's all that I'm, that's all that I would be looking for. Should I enter the race? Yeah. There was that one rule that you can't make personal disparaging attacks against other leadership contestants. Now, so far, no one has declared except for Ellis. So I presume he's the only one where that rule counts right now. Do you worry that there's going to be a loophole to that rule where third parties attack different candidates, whether that's yourself, potentially if you run, or whoever else? Yeah. So I think that like, I'm not a huge fan of like, I'm, I'm a proponent of treating people civilly and with respect and, and while having a very, uh, you know, thorough and for and forthright debate. But yeah, I think that, you know, if you're going to have third parties probably spring up or, or unofficial third parties, like possibly people that are on payroll on Twitter attacking other individuals. Um, so I think you're going to have a little bit of that. But, uh, and look, I, I'm always been a proponent. Like, but uh, you say, I mean, you say Twitter and stuff, but like some of those people are regular staples in the media who do political panels or are, you know, regular guests on political shows. So it's like, I just want to stop you there and just be like, it's not just Twitter. Like that stuff does bleed into other arenas. Yeah. A hundred percent. I would just say that a lot of the, uh, the early flack that I feel like I've that's come my way has been manufactured is, 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 uh, what I feel. Um, well, I I don't know. I mean, Mark, like, I I don't know. I don't know what the source behind it is, but I know obviously everybody can see who the people are now, what their motivations are. I'll let you speculate. Um, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, a little more, have more of an idea than I do. You know, I don't like, uh, I don't like traffic, trafficking and rumors on air, but, and, and, in, and, and in fairness that they are all rumors, but yeah, um, look, when some, when somebody goes around, I mean, like, look, we'll go back to Mark Marison. I don't know the guy. I'm sure he's, he's somewhat intelligent. So 
he obviously knows I'm not alt-right, yet he's going around saying that. So what's what's the purpose of doing so? I assume there's an underlying purpose. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, so, you know, I'll let people reach their own conclusions. Now, BC Minister of Economic Recovery, Ravi Kalon, who admitted to not knowing a lot about you, said that you reminded him of Maxime Bernier. Mark Marison also drew this comparison as well. From what I can see, you talk a lot about lowering taxes, government waste, privatization, supporting the natural resource sector, urban lawlessness, and you dabble a little bit into the social issues, but nothing like Rebel Media or Jordan Peterson. How do you see yourself? Are you a carbon copy of Maxime Bernier? I really, so <laughs> I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I really dislike labels because as soon as you attach yourself to, oh, he's like so-and-so, you then basically end up taking all of their baggage or all of their policy positions. But you must have some influences or people that you align with, maybe not perfectly, but somewhat. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 uh, I take from a wide variety of, of inspirational sources. Um, but at the end of the day, I am for, I'm a realist. I'm for common sense and for public policy that works for taxpayers. You just listed a bunch of the issues that I talk about uh, frequently. Um, you know, I can talk a little bit about, you know, my political idols and things like that, but that's, um, you know, at the end of the day, I want things that work for work for people because I, you know, like I get, cause people always ask me, who's your, your inspiration. Obviously there's, there's, um, there's real obvious ones for people like me. Like there's John A. McDonald, there's Winston Churchill, you know, the ones that, mm -hmm. you know, conservative minded people tend to go to. But for me, like my political inspiration by far is my grandfather who never was involved in politics, but he's why I'm in politics. He came to this country with nothing. He was a refugee. The only thing he had was uh, a backpack, which got stolen in Newfoundland when he got off the ship in January at minus 30 below. Uh, he came here with absolutely nothing. He started working a minimum wage job. He worked his way up. He, he bought his first home. He built his second home. Um, blue, co blue collar job union, uh, Shemaine Sawmill. And, you know, those are the kind of people that I want to fight for. Those are the kind of people that inspire me to get involved in politics, like the everyday people. I don't care about the elites. I don't care about, you know, uh, some of these other, other issues. I, I care about, you know, hardworking people who in this province uh, have, you know, it's harder and harder to get ahead. I feel like it's harder and harder to like pay your bills, the cost of living, um, all these issues, the housing uh, bubble, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. It's, it's, uh, these are the people that really, you know, inspire me to get involved in, in politics and that came here, work hard, paid their taxes and followed the law. Did you support any candidate in the last federal conservative race? Uh, I definitely didn't campaign for any candidate. I did, I did vote in the last leadership race. Um, I w I was an Aaron O'Toole person. I can't, I think I put Leslie Lewis, uh, ahead of him on the ballot, but I knew she wasn't going to win. Like it was between, um, I mean, realistically, if you're going to have a prime minister, I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to lose some supporters here, but if you're going to have a prime minister in charge of a bilingual country, you need a bilingual prime minister. And, uh, my, my support was definitely for, for O'Toole over McKay. What is your relationship with Rebel Media? I know you've done some sort of work with them. You gave Kian Bext an exclusive interview recently, which you know broke my heart because I thought you were going to give me the exclusive. They're often criticized for spreading misinformation, conspiracy theory, unfounded paranoia. 
which is an assessment that I kind of agree with. So why are you talking to them when so many politicians have disavowed them? So uh, three things. One, uh, so I don't, uh, I don't really have a, a relationship with them, uh, whatever that means. Uh, with regard to the exclusive, I you did do a Wet'suwet'en video, I think that they aired, or no, on the Wet'suwet'en protests. Um, I'm gonna go with no. Okay, maybe. I'm uh, incorrect. Yeah, they possibly like interviewed me for comment, but that wouldn't. Okay, uh, it's not like a. I never been paid by them or anything like that. Okay, fair enough. Um, take that back. The. Uh, the second point was exclusive. So uh, they just asked for a comment on the story. So, so they called you? Uh, texted. So uh, okay. <laughs> I, I think we might be pushing the exclusive. They might be, we're pushing the exclusive narrative a little bit more than. Uh, so might this be is more exclusive, is what you're telling me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, now, for the third part of your question, though, yeah, I, I do talk to Rebel Media. I certainly do not agree with everything that they say, but I certainly do not agree with uh, a lot of people who I talk to. I mean, we don't agree probably on 75% of issues <laughs> being if we're being nice. generous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and here I am speaking with you. So I don't think that should be a prerequisite to talking to people. And I also think, and this is actually a really important point that I want to make mm -hmm. is I'm not going to rebel news to talk to rebel news or talk to Ezra Levant. Uh, I'm not coming on this podcast to talk to, to Mo Amir because I would, Text you. I would text you if I wanted to, <laughs> if, if, if I wanted to chat with you, uh, when I'm talking to rebel media, I'm talking to the tens of thousands, I think actually hundreds of thousands of people that consume their content across the country. Mm. These are everyday British Columbians. Uh, you know, I go through the list again, forestry workers, pipe sure. fitters, electricians, plumbers, whatever, no, whatever big, the case may be. Big reach, big audience. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm talking to them and, and the standard that I hold for myself that I will always defend is that I should be held accountable for every word that comes out of my mouth and for everything that I say and that I stand for. And I'm not going to go down this kind of guilt by, uh, uh, you know, association wormhole that I feel like we keep pushing people towards. Um, at the end of the day, that's when I go on there, um, I'm obviously accountable for what I say. And, um, I'm, ha and I've only, I think I've been on there four or five times and it's usually a talk about pipelines or Johnny McDonald, I think. So, mm -hmm. When we talk about that guilt by association wormhole, I mean, that was kind of press progress's angle, right? Like you spoke at an event that allegedly some people attended. I agree with you that it is a bit of a wormhole and, you know, you can really get into these reaches sometime with it, but you would agree that there is a limit at some point. Like if you are hanging out with, I'm not saying you are, let's say anyone was hanging out with neo-Nazis all the time. You would kind of raise an eyebrow and go, hey, why are you hanging out with these people all the time, right? Like, there is a certain limitation when we talk about that wormhole, when we talk about guilt by association. Like, it does exist in a reasonable manner. Yeah, I mean, if you are if you were hanging out socially with, with neo-Nazis, that would definitely raise a <laughs> bunch of questions about your own character. That's uh, agreed. Um, I think if you're... Uh, you know, giving people... like Again, Rebel, like, it's not really like I'm even... Uh, giving rebel a platform like I'm going on their platform actually speaking mm. to the people people that they have um, now there's also actually I'm sure from your perspective and you would have a better sense of this than I do an interesting dilemma about bringing because um, I'm sure there are there is arguments to because of course if you brought, brought like an actual white supremacist onto your show people could argue that you're giving them a platform mm -hmm. but if you brought them on to like hold them to account and like excise them and uh, 
you know, go, uh, after them on their, on their, on their beliefs and kind of call them out for it. I've seen, you know, mainstream media outlets do that kind of journalism before as well. It's an interesting moral dilemma, I'm sure. Yeah, um, it's a balance, right? And I know in the States, Alex Jones and some networks came under pressure, and even Richard Spencer, right, where mainstream media outlets were being criticized of, you know, why, do, why are you giving this guy a platform? And yeah, I'm mixed on it. Like, yeah, like it's I important have... to be critical, and especially if, if these are movements that are gaining traction and that are abhorrent, it's good to shine a light on things. So I don't know if ignoring it, and, and we're having the same debate with the anti-maskers, anti, they say they're the anti-lockdown protesters, but we're having the same issue here, right? Where a lot of people are asking questions in terms of, should we have these people on TV? But it's something that's happening in the city, right? Yeah. And I think, so and like, I do actually want to, I do want to clarify yeah. that I, I would be very, I want to be very clear that like, uh, you know, while I disagree with with Rebel on lots of uh, policies or how they cover things, uh, I do like Rebel is in a different category than like the than the Richard Spencers and and some of these really reprehensible characters. Mm-hmm. And there's um, so I do. Uh, you so were I asking think, me about guests, though, and that's why I brought. Yeah, up no, those no, one hundred percent, hundred percent. I just want thought it was important to make make that point or whatever. And and um, for sure, I've never I've never had to sit down with like a white supremacist or whatever. I mean, there are things like Press Progress. I mean, we're having a re- really interesting debate about the, the pros and cons of having these conversations with these kinds of individuals. That being said, like what Press Progress said was that there was a white nationalist in the audience while I was talking about government debt. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. Like, I don't have the control of, mm-hmm. of who's in the audience. And it's, you know, it's a public event. I remember when there was a... Uh, Did a you rat- ever meet Faith Goldie or, or Lauren Southern? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I met them at a... Uh, house party before everything blew up so i think that means i've met faith goldie one last time than justin trudeau has okay uh so this is before everything went completely sideways do you remember your encounter with them i mean it was it was not uh it was not memorable there was actually another i mean it was it was a house party it's actually weird talking about kind of house party condo party in the context of COVID now. Right. I'm thinking yeah. about it it's like, it's an <laughs> image of all these crowded, you know, you know how they are, yeah. all these crowded people. But yeah, no, it was, uh, it was just a bunch of political people at the time. And that's, mm. nobody would have thought much, uh, much of it. So you're not friends with. No, I don't, I, I haven't talked to them and I've never, I don't have their phone numbers. I've never spoken to either, either of them or anything like that. It seems like Lauren Southern's trying to make a comeback. And I think she's not even in this country. I think she's yeah, in Australia, Australia or whatever, yeah. but Faith Goldie seems to have fallen off the, the face of the earth. I want to go through some value-based ideas. And I know you like to talk. I like to talk, but I really just want yes or no answers. And if something gives me pause, we can get into it. Is that fair? Yeah, it's, it might be hard to give yes or no answers in some of these, but I'll I'll uh, I'll try. I've tried to make them as fair as possible. No, and and that's fine. And I I'm sure I know you understand. I'm sure your viewers understand that. Uh, like some of these issues are not issues that I talk about mm-hmm. uh, in my videos because I don't really think they should be public policy priorities. Um, but that being said, I'm also not one to shy away from from questions or or you know. Sure. Do you believe in climate change? So, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Allegedly, Ellis Ross doesn't. Allegedly. Yeah. That's what I've heard. I don't know if that's true. I can't. I honestly have no idea about <laughs> Ellis Ross. I, I heard you on your podcast that that same uh, accusation, but I have, I have no idea, but you'd have to ask Ellis. Sure, Hopefully yeah, yeah. he comes on the show. 
does the BC government have a responsibility to combat climate change? Um, to an extent, uh, respond to an extent. So the thing with, with thing, am I allowed to give a bit longer sure, an answer? Yeah, okay. an answer. <laughs> uh, so to an extent, so I, I've got no problem. Like, look, I'm not, I'm not a, the reason why I hesitated there is look, I'm not a climate climatologist or a, or a climate expert or anything like that. Um, but what I do think is that, and what I do stand up against is this notion that it's some kind of climate emergency where we're all going to die in 10 years. Like if you pulled out, if I, you know, had a heart attack and was lying on the ground convulsing everywhere, I think that would be an emergency. If we left the building and there's some uh, young lady being mugged, that would be an emergency. If God forbid I got a call from a family member that there was some health crisis, that would be an emergency. I think we're in a situation right now. Uh, I like to call it a climate challenge that's going to be dealt with over the next you know, half century, the rest, probably the rest of this century. Uh, let's be realistic. British Columbia and Canada, doesn't matter what we do, is going to have no measurable impact on climate change under any model whatsoever. Um, so I think that the only way this is going to be solved and dealt with is through technological innovation, not by uh, taxing everybody to such a degree that, that we all have to take the bus to work. So that's, that's how I view this issue. So I think it's all about technological innovation. But even if British Columbia doesn't have an impact on the world globally in terms of our carbon emissions, I don't think that exonerates us from having having to be responsible with regard to climate change. Well, I, I you make a very interesting moral point, but again, I frame my public policy solutions and proposals on what I see as best for taxpayers and common sense. And if we're uh, going to hike all of our you know natural gas heating bills, where people are trying to already struggling to make ends meet, and China is building a new coal plant every week, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, that being said, uh, so, so my only point there, though, mm -hmm. is that the one way to guarantee you move off of hydrocarbons into new technologies is to, through technological innovation, to make it economically viable to do so, because then everybody will change anyways. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the, num that's the number one push. And I mean, I know you don't want to talk about this in, in a huge amount of detail, but this is, this is sure. one topic. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. No, I, and I appreciate that. I think it clarifies your position with regard to the environment and, and your yeah. climate change policies. Back to sort of rattling through some of these questions. Do you believe in conversion therapy? Uh, no, as in, I'm assuming you mean like, if, does it work or something like that? I don't know much about it, but, but no, I guess I'm referring to this idea of Lori thrown ass. <laughs> He's saying that conversion therapy is not a big deal or like, because you, I mean, you have institutions that have said that it's a violation of human rights to take someone who is gay, homosexual and put them through this quote unquote conversion therapy to try to make them straight. Yeah, like, look, I don't, I don't know a lot about uh, about this issue. I mean, it seems bizarre to me. Obviously, like, it doesn't. Uh, no, I guess is the answer. I mean, I, I would say I think constitutionally, you probably can't stop two adults through their own free will from doing something. Um, it, you know, it, in any in any context. So, uh, but yeah, no, I don't think. I mean, it's it's it doesn't. I mean, it just seems bizarre to me, and seems like even a weird weird thing to talk about. I mean, there was a BC liberal member of caucus that got in a lot of trouble about this, right? So that's why I bring this up. And, yeah, no, fair enough. And people want to know more about you and where you stand on some of these social issues. Have you ever attended pride festivities? No, I have not. 
What what are you doing? They're so fun. <laughs> Not a parade guy. I don't I don't know. Yeah, no no I haven't. No I haven't. With regard to reproductive rights, do you believe in a woman's right to choose? Well, if I answer this question, you're going to have to give me a little bit more time. Really? Yeah. Um Okay, take take a few minutes. Well, th- so this question, it's funny because I, I like to consider myself a pretty straight, sh- straight shooter. Mm-hmm. And um, this is one issue that I think is, I find one of the most difficult and complex issues actually. Now, uh, for myself personally, like I, I do believe um, there is value and in, in, in sanctity to every uh, human life. And, you know, I'm personally not a fan of abortion. That being said, uh, I've got very close personal friends who have had abortions and I know it's nobody's first choice. I know that nobody wants to get an abortion or is thrilled about getting an abortion. Um, so, and, and I think there's an element of this as like a, as a guy that there's obviously, I will never understand the, the issue in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that being said, I mean, from a public policy perspective, just because that's how my brain is oriented. Uh, I mean, it's not a provincial issue, but I would never bring in legislation regarding abortion, but I would welcome pro-choice and pro-life people into caucus. And I would always stick up for pro-choice or pro-life individuals to uh, voice their views and, uh, you know, as far as freedom of assembly goes with, our, with regard to freedom of expression especially on university campuses, which at times have not been so friendly towards um, the expression of some of these viewpoints. Would you yourself speak at a pro-life rally or event? I probably wouldn't, but that's more to me. I mean, I don't think this is where we're going with this podcast, but with this, I mean, again, I asked this because Lori Thronis and Rich yeah, Coleman no. got in trouble over this, right? No, this I was in the news it. and a lot of people questioned BC liberal values as a result of it. So that's why I'm asking it's, you this It's question. a total legi- totally legitimate question. I mean, I was just going to say with regards, you asked me if I would speak at an event like this. For me personally, um, this is kind of connected to uh, faith and that's a personal issue for me that I actually get a little bit on, you know, I'm, I'm not someone that wears that openly at all. And, um, so, so no, I, I wouldn't, but that being said, I'd have no problem with MLAs speaking at events. I'm certainly not going to throw social conservatives under the bus. Um, so I, I support the right of people to express themselves. And again, it comes back to, as far as government policy goes, that's not a, a provincial issue. And, um, if somebody I, I would never consider introducing any legislation, even if it was. Last sort of quick question. Sure. Hopefully it'll be quick. Sorry, that's kind of a convoluted answer. But. No, I, I appreciate the answer and I appreciate the thought you gave to it. Hopefully this one's shorter, but if you need more time, let me know. <laughs> Are white Canadians being erased in this country? No. Okay. <laughs> that one I can do short. <laughs> so let's get into some policy. I'm going to get into my, my second tall boy here. Money laundering isn't something that BC liberals really talk about unless they're asked about it. I've asked both Andrew Wilkinson and Christy Clark about their efforts and views on this issue on this podcast. You've explicitly said that if you were to run, this would be a priority for you. Before we get into maybe some of your own policy prescriptions, 
Do you think what I just said is true, that BC liberals don't really talk about it? And if you agree with me, why don't BC liberals in general talk about money laundering? I got to remember those, uh, those rules in the, in the leadership race right now. <laughs> well, um, you, you, you can't speak against Alice. Yeah. So that's the only guy. No, look, uh, we chat a little bit about this. I think you, you know a lot more about this issue than I do. Um, and obviously I'm not at a point where I can sp- like, if I get in the race, uh, it's totally to be expected that obviously as a candidate, you have to know your issues inside out and have policy prescriptions for everything. Um, this is one that I'm still, uh, you know, digging into a little bit more, but let's, let's be honest too. Uh, you know, money laundering was happening in BC. Uh, it was one of the contributing factors to the housing bubble that made housing unaffordable for people like me, mm-hmm. uh, in cities like Vancouver and Victoria. Um, the, the BC liberal government had a role to play in that. Um, you know, they obviously failed on that policy prescription and that's one of the reasons why they lost the last election i think that that's um you know we can't have this situation where you have people that work hard that follow the law who then can't afford homes in the communities that they grew up in i don't think that's fair i don't think that's reasonable and um I think that's something that, that government has a role in, especially w- when you have something like money laundering, where you have illegal money coming from outside of the country that's contributing to the problem. Obviously, there are other reasons behind it, but that is, that is an unacceptable, um, that is an unacceptable uh, outcome as far as I'm concerned. Are you implying that the BC liberals don't like talking about it because they failed on that file in terms of regulatory policy? Well, I can tell you that they failed on the file of housing affordability um, and money laundering was a component of that. And like I said, I think you probably have a greater depth of understanding of that. Of course, there's other issues like there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's other supply issues and stuff like that. And also, let's be honest, the, uh, you know, the secrets kind of out about British Columbia being, you know, one of the nicest places in the world to live. Sure. So that's some that's, you know, going to be a hard cat to put back in the bag. But. Yeah, I think like, look, it's it's a it's a sensitive topic. I think they're a little embarrassed by it. I think the NDP has rightly smelled blood. Um, and look, if you're in power for that long, you're going to make mistakes, also. And I think it got a little bit away from them. And um, look, I, I and I've and I've had you know this is going to turn some people off, but I've I've had conversations with people about this, and I'm you know I'm a renter. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm paying for rent. Like I'm one of these individuals, <laughs> like not sorry to drag my grandfather back into this, but he, uh, you know, he came here, worked at a minimum wage job for a year and a half and was able to afford a home mm-hmm. and a nice piece of property. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how long you'd have to work at a minimum wage job right now to be able to afford a house. More than a nice your lifetime for sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I think that uh, you know, housing affordability ha- is, is key. Like, I think it's, it's, uh, do you really have any policy for prescriptions for money laundering or let's say housing affordability? So, I mean, money laundering, I mean, obviously money laundering is illegal. You got to close mm-hmm. loopholes. Um, th- there's some real technical uh, side of this. I'm, I'm worried that to me, it's just about having the political will to do something about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably not uh, rocket science, but you really need to, to be willing to clamp down, uh, on something and, and, uh, you know, 
tell some of the big developers, but sorry, but uh, you know, we need to have fairness and, and equity in our system. Uh, on the supply side, I do think uh, in fairness, there are massive amounts of regulations. Look, we built the Empire State Building in 18 months. 18 months they built the Empire State Building, which was the tallest uh, building at the, at the time in the entire world. And now it takes, a, you'd be lucky to build the Empire State Building in a decade with the amount of, of, of regulatory burns and red tape that you have to go through. And that doesn't mean we should sacrifice safety or environmental protections, but I think there's ways where we can increase supply um, at, a, at a faster clip. Because again, at the end of the day, uh, you know, in a Canadian constitution, there's freedom of movement. So Vancouver and Victoria, two of the nicest places in the entire world, you're going to have people that are going to continue to move here. And money laundering aside, prices are going to keep going up unless you build more supply and you build more density in certain areas. I mean, that's just, you know, that's basic math. So money laundering aside, would you clamp down on legal speculative practices? And that runs the gamut in terms of foreign buyers or people who buy multiple properties or people who sit on properties or Airbnb them speculative things that are technically legal. So the exact policy prescription is something that I would be coming out in detail with in, in, uh, in a couple months time. But the short answer is if you're buying houses, uh, you know, just to speculate, like, um, that's not on for me. I mean, go buy game stock or something like that. Like <laughs> you're, when you're, so you would add regulation when here. you're buying homes and you're, you're distorting the housing market, you're messing up people's lives. So I think that that's now, um, I don't want to, and especially when you're talking about people from outside of the country, I don't like elements of certain laws that treats different Canadians, uh, differently from one another. Um, and I think there's elements of the current law that's not perfect, but, um, I know we're kind of talking big picture right now cause you want to get where I am yeah. uh, on a, on a values level. And yeah, like if you, if you're, I, un I understand. But I understand. just treat foreign buyers different. I mean, foreign buyers technically are being treated differently. Yeah. Would you continue to clamp down on them? I think the, I think the exact policy would come in the future, but the short answer is yes. And, um, possibly more stringently because look at the, at the end of the day, you made the perfect point there about speculation. I mean, you, you can speculate, um, and, and you can save your money and invest and stuff like that. You know, that's why we got a stock market. We got all sorts of futures that you can invest in. I took finance at school. I know how it mm. works. When you mess with housing, you mess with people's lives because you make it impossible for people to afford homes in the communities that they grew up in. And I think that's wrong. And that might make me unpopular with, within certain wings of this party, but that's Would that's you fine. be interested in public housing that the province would fund? Well, publicly built housing, or you mean like they're providing the the spaces? I mean, I, I, I tend I tend to find government incompetent at doing most things. Uh, ICBC being a great example. So I I am not a big government person, uh, generally speaking. Yeah, I mean, I, and this is one of those things that actually goes into federal territory because the federal government had a long history of building co-ops and building socialized housing, and they kind of got out of that game in the nineteen nineties. We've certainly had promises and there's debates about how well they've been fulfilled from this current government in terms of building affordable homes, which have where the province plays a significant role. So would you still be interested in that? Or do you think this is something that the market can take care of itself? 
complicated question, but but I'll give you a big picture answer, which is that I think the government tends to be, for the most part, incompetent and inefficient at delivering services. And I would much prefer a regulatory approach that directed incentives in a way that benefited everyday British Columbians or Canadians, depending on the jurisdiction. So I much prefer the regulatory approach. I do not, I do not believe in the, let's just let everything go and see what happens. Um, <laughs> I guess I, that's what I'm getting at yeah, too. But, yeah. so, but I much prefer to use the tool of regulation to steer the private sector into providing outcomes that make sense for everybody. And I'm just going to open this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This guy as well. <laughs> One component of housing, of course, is homelessness. And I'll be completely frank with you. I'm a little turned off by some of the language that you've used in this context. You've talked about tent cities being out of control, and you've used some other highly charged rhetoric about tent cities. I think the general consensus is that they're not sustainable. I mean, even people on the left understand that this is not how we want people in our community to live. You said you want to stop incentivizing tent cities. What do you mean by that? And what is your solution, even in broad strokes? Yeah, well, I mean, maybe better way of saying it is, is uh, just stop. I don't think we should be allowing them. Like, I don't think we should be allowing 24-7 camping in, in city parks. Uh, so, I, I mean, allowing them. But are you is, talking about criminalizing that? I Going to what the laws traditionally were, which is, which is not allowing those to happen. Look, you have, you have people in these communities who have had their uh, neighborhoods basically stolen from them, their parks stolen from them. It's not safe for their children to go out and play because they're going to step on some discarded needle. Uh, I don't think that's fair to these, you know, tax-paying citizens uh, whatsoever. I mean, outside of Strathcona Park, you had somebody murdered. In Victoria, you had someone stabbed who was lying in the middle of uh, the Trans-Canada Highway, Douglas Street, uh, from the Centennial Park tent city that's since been removed. So I think these are... Um, these are these are terrible and then i think we also have to be honest by the way like for the most part there are shelter spaces available but a lot of these individuals who aren't in the shelter spaces and most of them are uh, don't want to go there because they don't want to abide by the rules regarding drugs or alcohol or or prostitution or whatever the case may be so i don't think you so no i don't think you have a right to occupy a public park um and then set up your own little fortress there and, and, and do whatever now. Um, but do you think these people should be moved without there being an option for housing for them? Cause it just becomes a game of whack-a-mole, right? If you keep, if you keep moving and, and kicking these people out of this park and then that park, eventually the solution is you have to house them, right? Well, so big picture on, and again, this is a complicated problem that deserves a more, um, detailed solution that uh, assuming I run, I would release in time. But at a big picture level, first of all, you walk around East Hastings and, and these 10 cities, uh, there's a huge problem with mental illness. I mean, people that are severely mentally ill. And I think it is reprehensible and disgraceful that a society as rich as Canada and British Columbia are, are 
I mean, allowing this to happen. I mean, we need to get these people help. They need to be, we need to reopen the, the hot, some of the hospitals that have been closed. Um, like this is a, this is a lose, lose for everybody. Like I, I can't imagine only the government could find such a lose, lose situation. This obviously isn't good for them. This obviously isn't helping them. This isn't humane and it's, it's not good for us either. Uh, on the drug side of things, uh, obviously these people need to get again a similar situation where it's not good for anybody. It's not good for nobody's in nobody's interest to be addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not society's interest. It's not in the friends and family of that individual's interest. So we need to get them help as well. And then there are criminal elements as well, which I think there's sides of the political spectrum that don't want to admit, like the tent city in Victoria, which I'm more familiar with has bicycle chop shops in there have people i talk to police officers all the time it's a revolving door prison system they go in they do six months they come back out and they're right back at it again so these kind of people that are just in and out of jail i think it's time for them to stay there and um so i think that removes you know 85 percent of the problem and uh you know i think you're not left with and you need shelter spaces for people that are you know if they're if you're down on your luck of course you're saying 85 percent of the tensity is criminal no no i mean like 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 either mental illness, okay. drugs, or, okay. or, or criminal. Okay. Like this, yeah. I don't think there's a lot of people that are just, I ended up in a tent city one day. I'm right. sure you can, I'm sure you can find a handful of them, but, uh, it's, it's really not you the norm. All them together. I just wanted to be, clear. yeah, no, no, yeah. no, for sure. For sure. No, it's a uh, criminal element is our minority for sure, but it's a destructive minority because sure, they use yeah. the, they use the mentally ill and the drug addicted people as cover for some of their illicit activities. Sticking to this topic about tent cities and homelessness and what we see in the downtown east side, you've said that you want to stop hard drug use by using taxpayer money. I'm not sure if I got that quote correctly. Uh, I think I would have said stop hard drug use using taxpayer money, i.e. don't give out free heroin. Is actually So like, are you against safe supply? Yes, yes. Why are you against safe supply? Because I think it's an oxymoron. I don't think heroin is safe. I don't think that is, you know, I like, I want to give you some credit though, because I think that there is an argument to be made that if you give the current system, uh, actually, you know, let's back up (laughs) in 2001, Vancouver and British Columbia embarked on this quote unquote harm reduction strategy. Mm -hmm. And it was a much lauded strategy and they were going to do the safe injection site came in and, and four pillars and all that kind of stuff. There was about 160 uh, overdose deaths that year. Fast forward to this past year, and we had over 1,700, and it was the highest uh, in history in British Columbia by far. Now, that obviously isn't just to do with safe injection sites. There's the the increase in fentanyl and all that that kind of stuff. But a big part of it is we're not getting the people off the, off the drugs, and we're just we're just as far as I'm concerned, just perpetuating the problem. And I think if you look at those statistics. I mean, it feels like we did the social experiment for 20 years. We tried harm reduction. If we look at the results we just got in 2020, they're in. And I think it's been an abject failure. I don't know, like, I don't know how it could have failed uh, worse. Like, I don't know what kind of results we would need to be like, oh, this didn't work. I think people are ideologically committed to this idea of harm reduction. And look, if it was, if it was, uh, and I think that's because there's, there's nothing safe about heroin. And if it was, if it was my son or my friend or my sister uh, on the streets, I wouldn't want a government worker, social worker, police officer giving them a, uh, like a clean needle and heroin and sending them on their way. Like I don't think that's a solution. But I do think, to your point, what we have now is probably the worst of all worlds, where there is no safe supply 
and we're not enforcing any laws and it's just people going around and ended up you know just overdosing on mass over four people a day which is and and most of them are young men uh i think you remember the average ages i think it's in the in the 40s like it's it's really sad and the other thing is it's it's sad for them but they obviously most of them probably have mothers and fathers and and probably some have kids and siblings and you can imagine how tough it would be on them and it's an absolute tragedy and i don't think we're helping these people but so the point i wanted to make was that safe supply might actually be better than the situation right right now i think it might be like a c minus instead of an f but i think there's a way better solution than that i think we got to get people right. off of drugs and so you're you're alluding to a conversation that we've had in the past and and i just want to kind of catch the listener up on that so my argument of course is that I mean, I understand the trend lines that you're trying to show. I think those are a little reductivist. There's a lot of things that have happened, a lot of factors. I think the poisoning of the opioid supply, which is being poisoned with fentanyl, which is a much stronger opioid, that's the opioids crisis, right? It's not so much an overdose crisis as much as it is a poisoning crisis. And what's happening is that people are dying because they don't know what they're taking in these drugs. And... You have people, you have these drug users who are going to use these drugs no matter what. And if the number one goal is to keep people alive on the premise that dead drug users can never get clean, but an alive drug user can get clean and has the potential to get clean, you give them safe supply, you give them free drugs that are clean, and first of all, that keeps them alive. Second of all, it prevents them from committing petty crime, including dangerous sex work. I wouldn't call that petty, I guess, but engaging in this type of behavior that is not good for them or not good for the community, it prevents them from doing that to get the money to pay for those drugs. And at the same time, what you're doing is you're trying to make the resources for rehabilitation accessible. I think there's actually a misnomer and unfortunately a false narrative in vancouver where people say that we have safe supply and they often because harm reduction i mean giving out a clean needle is not safe supply it's harm reduction they both fall under harm reduction but it's not safe supply and i think the problem is that people actually think that safe supply exists in vancouver when it doesn't it really exists in a few pilot projects i think five or six months ago dr bonnie henry said that you know because of everything that's happening open up the safe supply start handing out prescriptions we need to do something about the opioids crisis, which really worsened over COVID. And, you know, four or five months later, they realized that nothing was done. The directive was there on the ground, nothing, like nothing going to be done with, with regards to safe supply. So I think there is kind of that myth that people are getting free drugs everywhere in Vancouver. And I would just ask those people who propagate that idea to show me where it's happening, because I don't think it is. There are a few pilot programs. But otherwise, it's not available to everyone there. I just, I think when we talk about this war on drugs, there's a couple of things that I want to recognize. And the first is, and this is in, the, in studies, that you can't force people to get better. The recovery rate of forced treatment is like in the single digits. It's not good. And drug users have to come to that commitment. And similar to like quitting smoking, you know, it takes a couple of tries. I think there's certainly an argument for opening up beds. There's an argument for making some of these services perhaps more accessible. But I think in the context of keeping people alive, I think safe supply is the number one most urgent thing needed. And 
I just worry that when you talk about criminalizing hard drug use, we're talking about something that would disproportionately affect poor people. Because oftentimes, and we've seen this in the war on drugs, it's not about breaking up the Coke parties in Yaletown. It's about the street user. Yeah, well, I think it's about the, I, well, I mean, like I, I, you've obviously, we've all been down the downtown east side. It's now in Victoria on Pandora Avenue. Uh, I'm sure it's in Kelowna now and I've seen it in Prince George. This is a, uh, this is a really serious problem, but I do not agree. Like it's, it's that I do not agree in, in kind of this destigmatization approach towards this problem. I think if you look at drinking and driving, like we didn't, we didn't try to destigmatize drinking and driving. No, but we try to destigmatize alcoholism. Not in the context of drinking and driving, though. Like we, like we, <laughs> no, re- we recognize but you're, that. But you're I talking mean, about it. But you're conflating an addiction with a crime, right? So, it, those are two different things. I don't think anyone's addicted to drinking and driving. You're addicted to alcohol. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's a lot of alcoholics. I'm sure a lot of the repeat drinking and drivers are probably uh, alcoholics. But I, there's not a huge compassion campaign. Look, I like. I think that we all want the same thing here, right? We, we all want the same that. thing yeah, yeah. for sure. And my premise would be that I don't think like, to me, it's about, first of all, doing whatever you can. And we're probably in agreement on this at stopping people from getting the point where they're doing heroin, they're doing crack cocaine, these kind of drugs where like, uh, you can basically destroy your life. You destroy or heavily impact lives of those around you. And you become an incredible burden on, you know, your community and society and neighborhood. And nobody wants that. Like that is like a lose, lose, lose across the board. Mm-hmm. And it is very hard to pull people back. So whatever you can do to stop people from going down that road. And once they go down that road, I agree. We obviously want to keep them alive. We don't want people dying that have their entire, most of their lives still in front of them. But to me, that is like a really low level of success. Like it, we really need to find ways to get these people off drugs. And I don't think that, you know, giving, uh, giving people heroin, say uh, a clean needle and a pamphlet and sending them on their way is it's look if like i said if i had a son if i had uh or i do have a sibling or one of my best friends that's not how i would want that situation dealt with i really think um we need to be more proactive on this but is it fair and i i don't want to you know spend the rest of the time on this but is it fair to say that there are short medium and long-term and long-term being structural solutions I mean, those long-term structural solutions would be preventative policy, right? Preventing people from getting to that point, having more services available with regard to mental health, housing, whatever, right? But but there's that preventative element. Like, I just feel like it's not, <laughs> there's no silver bullet and, and things have to be segmented into what do we do right now to keep people alive? What do we do right now to maybe nudge some of the drug users into rehabilitation? And then long-term of like, how do we make sure that new people don't become drug users or drug users to that extent. Yeah. I mean, there's, I just, I just, um, you you know, maybe the difference of the approach is obviously we're all pro prevention. Like, I think that's, that's pretty safe to say. Mm -hmm. Um, and right now there's this focus on the safe supply movement, um, of just basically, you know, uh, giving out, uh, free heroin and, uh, keeping people, I guess, notionally alive. And I don't think, 
I like I said, I don't think that actually exists in Vancouver. No, I mean, there's just the pilots, like you said, but there's proposals to expand it. And that's obviously what the mayor has has talked about doing and the provincial and federal government have talked about doing. Of course, it's not happening Mm -hmm. across the board in, in large scale. But I just don't think that in general... That harm reduction, if you look over the past 20 years, has, has worked very effectively. And um, I think there's there's deeper issues. And I think we really have to focus on get we have to focus on stopping to people, uh, stopping people from doing hard drugs like heroin and then getting them off hard drugs like heroin. And, um, y- you know, kind of these in-between solutions or band-aid solutions, I don't think. Are, but again, like I do want to see, I don't want to seem like I'm ignoring the facts or ignoring the point that you're putting forward. I actually agree from an outcome perspective, safe supply added to the system that we have now would be better than the current system that we have now. But I think that is still a really low, like you're basically just keeping people on life support. And um, I'm sure to, in fairness to you, you probably are... Um, you know, you want to have more programs to get help people get clean and stuff like that. And, uh, and I'm still working on kind of my, my plan on this, should I run, but I would, I do think there needs to be a more, you know, the focus has to be on getting people off of drugs, not treating them as criminals, but focused on getting people off of drugs. Cause I do not think it is an acceptable part of society to have people shooting up in alleys in anywhere in British Columbia. I don't think that should be acceptable, but not, not just from like a society perspective, but for, for their own health. And I, again, if it was, if it was me or if it was, uh, you know, if this leadership race goes really badly and it's me sitting in that, in that alleyway or it's, uh, (laughs) I think you'll be okay. Yeah. But no, but you see my point. Let's move on to another controversial subject. I won't give you this much pushback on this one. Mm -hmm. The BC liberals brought in the carbon tax. You're vehemently against it. Why do you want the BC Liberals to do a U-turn on this long-standing party policy? Look, I've always been against the carbon tax. Uh, I think it was a bad policy then. I think it's a bad policy now. I think it's regressive. I think it hurts uh, poor people the most. I think it's basically, or it is basically, a wealth transfer tax from rural and suburban areas of this province to the downtown elite that can afford to drive Teslas. And I don't think it does anything to, to stop climate change at all. So uh, it has got no measurable you know, impact, especially when China is building new coal plants every week. So, I mean, that's why I pose. We I would pose still have to tax. pay the federal carbon tax though, right? Like even if we scrapped our own, then we yeah okay. Well, you get, you get in a little bit of a technical. So right now the, the, the federal carbon tax is before the Supreme court. And I mean, Trudeau's prime minister right now in a minority government. Mm-hmm. So that is a separate, I mean, that's a little bit of a separate question. So the, yeah. the answer of my, am I for the carbon tax would be under a situation where there's, you know, you're not being, having a federal one imposed upon right. you, presumably yeah. speaking. Yeah, fair enough. Do you not feel that externalities with regard to pollution or carbon emissions be taxed or disincentivized? I don't think... I mean, if you, if it can have, again, I'm, I'm for common sense, public policy that makes a difference. I'm not really for, uh, you know, to me, the carbon tax is just another virtue signaling tax that doesn't actually accomplish anything. So that's how, that's how I view it. And if we're being honest, the number one thing we could do to, to combat CO2 emissions would be to, um, you know, expand our natural gas industry as quickly as possible and get the world off of coal because still almost a third of fossil fuel, uh, you know, burning in this 
on, on planet Earth is coming from coal, which is which is a lot more dirty CO two wise intensity, but also from all those other uh, things that make air pollution so bad. So um, I actually think that there's you know a solution to be made there. And by the way, the other thing is we already have one of we do have one of the lowest per capita emissions uh, in Canada already because we are all hydroelectric pretty much. So um, we don't have a lot of emissions that way. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, actually the other, and the other thing is we, we already have a carbon tax, like the, so take carbon, the actual carbon tax aside, if you want to talk about the provincial levies that are on roads, the federal levy that's on roads, the TransLink tax, these are all, I think they account to around 40, 45 cents in a city like Vancouver per liter of gasoline. These are taxes that people that are driving electric cars don't have to pay. And they're supposed to go, those, those levies are supposed to go towards roads and mass transit. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously everybody using the roads aren't paying those taxes now because right. a bunch of people are paying electric cars. So what that tax has effectively become is a carbon disincentivization tax. Right. So I don't think you need another carbon tax ahead of it. Um, and again, it's just, you know, the, the, I mean, there's some there's some crafty kind of arguments you can make, but for the average person, uh, you know, they're heating their home using natural gas, uh, you know, up in Prince George, and that's really the only reasonable way to heat your home up there. And I don't think they should be be punished for it. Super controversial question: Do you have any ideas for renaming the party? Because I heard that they're throwing around the idea of the Kevin Falcon Party. Oh. I've heard some organizers say the that KFP. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> um, I actually, uh, so I do. Okay. Can you share them? Uh, no, unfortunately, Why not? no. So, well, I tell like you one thing. Well, <laughs> actually, yeah, actually, seriously, someone could go register the party name and then it would no longer be available. Why haven't you registered the names? Well, I think that might be a little bit too transparent. Okay. Fair enough. But um, I think that. To be honest, I had a bunch of uh, kind of average names. Look, I think any name would be almost better than the BC. Why liberals. do you think they should be changed? Because of Trudeau? I think because, it, well, look, you, you have a party that's, okay, a couple of reasons. First okay. of all, the party was created as kind of a coalition, a supposed coalition between federal liberals and federal conservatives. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why you would take the name of one of those two parties. That doesn't exactly scream unity, right? right? You know, it's like if me and you were making, uh, we we're doing a tennis team and we needed a name. We're like, okay, let's find a, a team name for us that makes sense. I know we'll call it like Mo's tennis team. Right. I don't yeah. know if that makes a lot of sense. Uh, for sure. I mean, it would for me, but I would yeah. see your point. Sure. Yeah. And I think uh, Justin Trudeau has obviously... Uh, poisoned the liberal brand for a lot of conservatives in a way that where it wasn't before. So I think that's made it harder and more necessary to change the name. But I actually take this one step further because I've had, and a lot of the establishment people I've talked to and the ones that want me to run still push back on this. They still, Oh yeah. They still really don't want that name changed. Hmm. And I push back on it because I don't like the idea of a coalition party between federal liberals and federal conservatives. I reject that. And I'll say that on stage and I'll be the only person to say that. I think we need a party with its own identity because you can't control where federal liberals and, and federal conservatives are going. To be honest, I'm going to get pummeled for saying this, but Trudeau has gone to the left of John Horgan on a variety of issues. Look at like deficit spending, for example, is, is just one example. John Horgan was doing his best pre-COVID to balance the budget. Uh, Justin Trudeau purposely ran deficits. So um, there's uh, there's other examples of this, obviously. But 
So I, I, like, how, how does that, if your entire party is based, if its identity is based on being part of two separate parties, it's just, it makes you seem wishy-washy. Like you've got no principles. Where are you standing? I think it needs its own identity. So would you more than just a name change, kind of revamp the party values and I don't know, mission statement. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Identity. I think it's still the, yeah. the, the same core of being, um, you know, a party that's, that's, that's pro entrepreneurship and pro, um, uh, free markets mm-hmm. and pro free enterprise and all that stuff would, would, would still be there pro kind of, you know, individual empowerment. So I think that core would still be there, but I think you need to build a, build your own identity. I mean, obviously the social credit are an example from BC's history. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't think the current, it's a different time now. It's not the 1990s anymore. Think things have changed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's certainly not. And I, I'm excited by the prospect of your candidacy in a leadership race and a general election just as a political observer, because I'm really curious how your following and your impressive engagement online translates to real world support. We look at your followers, I think last count 67,000 on Facebook. More than the followers itself, it's the engagement, like the amount of views you get on your videos, the amount of people that are in the comments section, just duking it out. It's amazing. Like, and especially now, you know, Facebook's changed the algorithm. It's really hard to get that type of engagement. When we look at your followers online, how many are from BC? Like, is this a sizable amount that you think you can mobilize? Yeah. And I think, so it doesn't show you, uh, by province, but it shows you by city. Mm -hmm. My biggest city is still Victoria. Hmm. Um, Vancouver is a little bit weird because it, it, uh, Facebook breaks it up into like Surrey, Vancouver, oh, okay. Burnaby, yeah. Langley, all this kind of thing, uh, Richmond. So, um, but Victoria is still my biggest city. And I, I would estimate that about half of my followers are from British Columbia. That would okay. be my, that'd be my estimate. Um, as far as engagement, it just depends on the topic. Like Facebook's algorithm will steer the video in a certain direction, right? So mm-hmm. if I do a video on ICBC, 80% of the engagement and the reach of that video will be in British Columbia because the algorithm will pick up pretty quickly. Oh, hey, the only people watching this are within this one geographic region. So right. let's keep showing it to people within that region. Whereas if I do a video on Trudeau, it will spread out more across the country. If it's pipelines, it will focus in Western Canada. Hmm. You kind of see the see the trend. Yeah. So uh, again, it's it's some people think this is nefarious, but it's you know social media is like trying to show people what they want to see. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I've got uh, you know I don't know roughly half, but I'm just guessing of those followers from British Columbia. But again, engagement. Uh, if you look at my videos, like the ICBC video, right, a million views, vast majority of those are in British Columbia. So hundreds of thousands of British Columbians have seen my videos. Yeah. Um, I don't know what my uh, what my uh, name recognition level would be at province wide, but for sure, um, you know, if, if you're on Facebook and it with any consistency in British Columbia over the past three years, you've probably seen one of my videos. I think that's at some a point. fair assessment. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of name recognition, I mean, the average person really isn't following politics the way you and I would follow politics. They would know every single MLA or I would be surprised if they were familiar with any of the presumed candidates in the race right now, to be honest. It would be, um, because it's a really interesting question. I know there's not a lot of money in this anymore because media companies used to commission polls. Uh, it would be interesting to see name recognition. To be honest though, I might have higher face recognition than name recognition Mm. because people, 
might see my face on Facebook. But of course, ironically, with some of the establishment class, which tend to be uh, males over 55, that's also the demographic least likely to be on Facebook. Right. So it's uh, it's a little bit uh, like basically everybody involved in politics under 45 knows who I am. But, you know, half of the ones that are over 55 don't know who I am. So there's a there's a generational gap there. Do you think that's part of the issue where when we look at even people in media, but certainly people in politics are of that demographic and they might be even told like this guy has a lot of engagement online and they kind of just brush it off like online. Who cares? Facebook. Okay, whatever. And they kind of brush it off because that's not the circle they're in. 100%. I think, I think that's 100%. It's happening. I don't really hold it against them. I think the media does have a blind spot, but I think this, this happens to everybody, you know, industries change. Mm -hmm. We're in the, I think we're honestly at the very beginning of kind of the information revolution. Uh, Me and you are both at the forefront of that in different, in different ways. And, um, but it's, it's what the way the future is going for sure. I mean, I'm sure your podcast reached a ton of people. It's super popular. It's super well done. And I reach about 2 million people, uh, you're much bigger than I am. I'll I'll fully admit that. (laughs) Well, it's on, it's on Facebook. It's a different, it's a different platform, but it's, um, yeah, but I think that's how people are getting their, their news. And honestly, obviously some people resent that as well. Yeah. And that's fine. But it's, um, yeah, I just, I just want to you know, speak to, it's also exciting. I'm sure you, I mean, I'm sure you love this platform and the ability to, to reach people that might have not otherwise. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, I think you and I have taken divergent paths here. I think you've really done an amazing job in terms of building your own brand on Facebook, building that platform. Whereas I have tried to build something and then go in partnership with mainstream outlets, whether that's mm-hmm. CKW or Vancouver's awesome and grow each other that way right well i think your your views might be more compatible with mainstream media outlets <laughs> i might i might uh, I, I piss off people every week too i mean maybe not on the same level you do but certainly i get my share of people who are angry so but you know it's just divergent but i, I think at the end of the day it you're right like people are craving and i said this at the top that we're populist bros or whatever but i think people are craving something with a little more heart a little more grit and I mean, it's one of those trendy buzzwords, but authenticity, 100%. you know, and it's not to say that media isn't authentic or it's not to say that politicians aren't authentic, but it's just that there's suddenly this space open of accessibility where you and I can enter these fields in very unconventional ways and make an impact that was not possible 30 years ago. So yeah, I mean, we're kind of, we're kind of off topic at this point, but it is interesting. And I just wanted to point that out that I think your candidacy, just as a a political observer, I think fascinates me in terms of what, what's possible. Yeah. And I've obviously had, I've obviously chatted with people across Canada that are in the political space and, um, look, I, it's not great being the guinea pig, but like, there's a lot of people that are very interested to see if I run how this plays out, because there's a bunch of kind of untested, you know, hypotheses that are, that Mm -hmm. are, that are out there and uh, we'll see how it goes. Cause obviously if you're going to run in a leadership, it's about, okay, you have this huge social media following. Can you translate that into, into the leadership? And I'll tell you the answer to that. The answer is nobody knows for sure because it's, it's never been done, but, um, so so then let's just get to it, man. Are you running or did you just waste two hours of my time? What are we doing here? 
Look, no, I am, I am, uh, I'm doing my due. I'm seriously considering it and I'm doing my due diligence. I will tell you one thing though, Mo, I, I don't think there's a huge rush like this. This, uh, vote is in February of next year. Mm -hmm. The vote in the 2017, 18 leadership was in February and people all got in at the end of August. So I'm not saying that's going to happen this time, but, uh, but I mean, like there's, this is a really long, like this is an outrageously long, uh, leadership. Um, this is going on during COVID or the first part of it's going on at least during COVID. Mm -hmm. We'll see when lunch arrives. Yeah, there you go. Not to, uh, uh, one of my CKW segments. Thank yeah. you, sir. And, um, so, and I think the other thing is I have an ability that other candidates might not to kind of stay relevant and stay engaged without getting in the leadership race instantaneously. Yeah. So I don't I think, think that's an advantage. Yeah. So I don't think there's not like I'm like rushing to get out the door. <laughs> And, and to be honest, if I'm being completely frank, I don't know how tuned in people are to, you know, the, some of these people are going to get in the race and they're going to try to attack the NDP for things that don't really exist right now. And that's, that's not really my brand. Like I, 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 I can't really force an attack on somebody. So, um, do we have a timeline of when you'll know for sure? Oh, I mean, like, like latest, I mean, there's, I can't, well, so the, well, the deadline to get in is the end of November. But the, the membership cutoffs the end of December. I mean, you'd have to be you'd have to be suicidal to get in, uh, you know, after Labor Day. Okay. Uh, but Labor Day would be very late. Um, but for so, okay, so the other thing. I mean, I don't want to put. Obviously, the federal election, the the possibility of a federal election also plays into this, mm. and that's something that people are going to be considering. And who knows when that's going to happen? But like, if there, you don't want to announce and then five days later there'd be a federal election going going on especially when you have a party whose name is confusing with regard to what's going to be happening federally right interesting. so I, so it's another consideration everybody knows this just so run for both man whatever just, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen <laughs> well hey listen i can appreciate that and i have to say this i'm a couple beers in now but i feel like you have the deck stacked against you Saying that, I want to give a shout out to my boy, Nick, and this is going somewhere, but I want to shout out Nick. I've known this guy since elementary school, good dude, family guy, union guy, he's a longshoreman, and your name has come up quite a bit. Different people have kind of reached out and said, oh, you should talk to Aaron Gunn, and I didn't really see the angle, but Nick has been like on me about like, you need to get Aaron Gunn on the show. You and Aaron Gunn need to work together. He keeps telling me that. And so finally, one day I asked Nick, I said, why? Like, why do you think me and Aaron Gunn would make a good team? Because we agree on virtually nothing. Eileen left. He's definitely a conservative. And Nick goes, you know what? I don't really know that much about politics. <laughs> I just trust you guys. And I know that you'll both work hard and you won't bullshit me. And I would just like to see you guys chat together. And I said, okay, you know what? That's, that's pretty fair. And I think that's a quality that a lot of people in the, we can call it again, establishment or these career political comms people don't get. They want to commodify it, but they just like don't have the heart or the instinct for it. They have all the rational computation, the money, the buzzword trends. But they don't know how to talk to regular people. They don't know how to digest things for regular people. And I, I would say they probably don't even know how to read a room outside their own bubble. And you know this. I mean, your success is evident to this. However, and you and I have talked about this, 
there are people out there that are discouraging you from running, but then you find out that those same people are taking money from other candidates who might be running, right? Like it's the, the waters are so muddied, but there's certainly like this establishment and you're not an establishment guy, but you can speak to people very well. Again, we went into some of the reasons that there's the generational thing. There's the conventional, unconventional thing. There's the elitist populist thing, but it does legitimately piss me off that there's this mountain of money and a bunch of old dudes sitting around. And there's this candidate who I would say is being manufactured, not by principles or truth, but by focus groups and special interests and mushy communications. And it annoys me when I see you being attacked. It annoys me when I see these rules coming out that I would say are trying to keep you on a leash. And this is from someone who disagrees with you. So I just feel like you have to run (laughs) because if you don't, you're basically telling other people who are underdogs, who are just regular people that like, you can't do it on your own. Machine's too big, too powerful, too demanding. They'll lie about you. They'll run your name through the mud. Politics is an elitist sport. Uh, You have to be in the inner circle to really affect change. And I know that you've seen this as well in terms of the people that have reached out to you that want you to run for that reason because they feel like you're a voice for them. And again, people can, can criticize your policies. People can criticize if you were to go ahead and go further in your political career. People can criticize how effective you were. But I think that we can't dismiss the supporters that you have that want to see you or someone like you in power. So I take your word that this isn't a publicity stunt, that you're seriously looking at this, but I think that you owe it to your fans and you owe it to people who feel disenfranchised by their government, by their political party, by a system in general that has a bad habit of talking at them (laughs) and not listening to them and, and talking for them. So Aaron Gunn, that is my two cents. Floor is yours. What is your call to action? Wow, well, that was that was quite the uh, quite the two cents you just gave me there. <laughs> Look, I'll just say this: um, a couple people came to me after the last provincial election where they felt that there wasn't a true alternative presented to British Columbians. There was no vision there. It was the shell of a party. Um, that didn't stake out any new bold ground, whether you agreed with it or not. Since then, a bunch of individuals have reached out to me, have commented, have sent me messages. I think your friend was one of them, which we discussed. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm going to be completely honest. Like at the start of it, it was a lot more about like weighing the options where I am in my life. And, and as you know, it's a huge undertaking mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of consequences that I'll have to to deal with by running and risks that I'm taking. But it definitely is becoming harder to back away every single time I get a message that says like, you have to run, like we need somebody out there saying these things and you're the only, like I didn't even vote in the last election, Um, you know, run, please run all these kind of things. And it, it, it makes it a lot. And I'm not like, that's not, that's a hundred percent the case. Cause to an extent you start to feel like you would be letting those people down. And, uh, that might've been a mistake on my part because now I'm getting myself into a, to a hole where like, uh, I'm quickly losing my strategic flexibility of, of whether I want to run or not. But like, you know, 
at the end of the day, I think it's part of being, I mean, I don't like labels, but you said populist, but I'm a huge believer in democracy, huge believer in democracy. And I just want to have, you know, a fair and open policy debate and present voters with real choices. And then at the end of the day, the voters decide. And I think there's something really in kind of our tradition in this country and in our culture that that's really, really noble about that. And to be honest, like I, during the last election, I'm sure nobody actually thought, thought this in the NDP <laughs> war room, but it, it kind of felt like they didn't even have really like a fight on their hands. Like it was, it wasn't even like a good political discussion. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think there were more ideas probably discussed. I don't know how long we've been talking for here, but there's been more policy and ideas discussed here with you today in a respectful manner than was discussed in the entirety of the 2020 provincial election. I, on, I honestly think that, and that's what I want to see more of. And if I can help move the dial, then, I mean, it's going to be a hard proposition for me to say no to. So you can't give me a definite answer. I can't. I, I, <laughs> and there is, and, and that being said, there no, also I is, I'm giving you a hard time. Come on. Yeah. There's some legal due diligence that also has to be done. So <laughs> no, dude, this was fantastic. I, I hope that you, I really enjoyed it. I, mean, I did too. This was a great birthday. I might have to get into that rum. <laughs> break into that before we leave the studio. But. Promise me that if you do run in the thick of the BC liberal leadership race, which I guess will be next year, technically, you'll come back on the show. We'll chop it up again. If I run in the leadership race, I'll come back on the show. If I win the leadership race, I will come back on the show again. <laughs> and if I become premier, I will come back on the show again. It doesn't matter if you turn on me and you criticize every single one of my policies because you, uh, this is a, I mean, this is a forum where you can express yourself and, uh, you know, there's too many politicians out there that, uh, don't want to, you know, stand by their views. And I hope, and actually I want to, I want to leave you with something. Sure. One of my. One of my favorite comments that I get on Facebook is, is, is a, it's a couple of different ones, but are the ones that say like, you know what? I usually agree with, or I usually disagree with everything that you say, but I agree with you on this topic. <laughs> or I usually disagree with everything you say, but I find your views interesting and passionate. Mm -hmm. And I really think that's what we need more of mm -hmm. right now. I really do. So I'm sure there's lots of your viewers who disagreed with the, a majority of what I said but possibly agreed with, you know, tid tidbits here and there. And I think that's good. Or they didn't, uh, they disagree with everything I said, but maybe they at least learned something about where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, that's a victory for, for society and, and for, um, the public discourse. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we kicked off the show kind of joking about like, oh, how canceled am I? It was a joke, but effectively what I wanted to do is people can judge you on what you actually stand for, what your actual beliefs are, that's fair game. But just me as someone who, again, came into media in an unconventional way, populist way, whatever, I don't like people being judged on who they are not. And so a lot of that stuff that I saw online, and I reached out to you, I, I think you followed me on Twitter or something, and then I sent you a message, it, it annoyed me. And I wanted to know who you really are because I couldn't see these accusations that were being thrown out there. And so just for that, I know, you know, two hours is an ask, right? And there's probably oppo research on every side right now who are licking their chops at this idea of listening to you for a couple hours. It's a big ask. I appreciate you being here. This was a fun birthday. I, I wish you the best of luck. I do hope you run. 
And I think you committed to like four different times that you'll come back on the show. So, you know, I hope we can make good on that. I'm, and we might have to do a uh, Facebook live chat at one point with you <laughs> as well to return the favor. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. And happy birthday. Thank you for having me. Happy birthday to you as well. People, do I have your attention now? He could be premier. And I know there's a few political camps in this province shaking in their boots at the prospect of him throwing his hat in the ring. He is an independent journalist and commentator. He is my populist bro. He is Aaron Gunn. And I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.